Well, it's great to be with you guys this morning. This is our second and final week as we talk about our Every Knee initiative here at Grace Bible Church. These two years that we're right in the middle of where we talk about what God is doing through our church and what he's calling us to do next. Towards that end, if you want to look under your seats real quick, there's commitment cards under your seats. Some of you were here last year, so you already filled one of those out. That's great. If you're new to Grace Bible Church, though, and want to join our Every Knee initiative and be part of what God is doing through our church in this next season of our calling, then you can fill one of those out. While I'm preaching during the sermon, you can pray about that and fill it out. And then there are some buckets at the back of the room and in the foyer on your way out where you can drop that out off on your way out this morning. We're going to be back in the book of Acts this morning. So if you'll turn to Acts chapter 2, book of Acts chapter 2. So just to refresh your memory from last week, the church begins in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 are about the birth of this new form of the kingdom of God on earth that we call the church. This family called to be witnesses of Jesus' resurrection to all nations until Jesus returns. We looked at that last week. We're continuing that this week. In Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at a short passage right at the end of Acts chapter 2 that talks to us about the nature of this new kingdom of God on earth, this church family. What were they like? And what we're going to see at the end of Acts chapter 2 is that from the very beginning, this church family was called to radical generosity towards one another. So I want you to look with me, chapter 2, starting in verse 43. Everyone, all, all the believers in the early church, kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions. And were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This early church community was radically generous. It says that they went and sold everything that they had. So they all had one kind of one common pot to take care of needs. Now, there is an unusual situation here in, in this particular church. You may have noticed how often did they meet for church? Every day. Every single day, all day long, they were together for church in the temple. We can't exactly do that or we would all lose our jobs. Um, that actually wasn't practiced later in the book of Acts. It was unique right here to the beginning because something amazing just happened. 3,000 people entered the church in one day. And before that day, there were only 120 of them. So the church grew bigger than it's ever grown before, percentage-wise. 120 to 3,000 in one day. Most of those 3,000 who entered the church did not live in Jerusalem. They were, they were foreigners who were visiting for the Passover celebration, meaning they didn't have anywhere to live in Jerusalem. They didn't have jobs to support themselves in Jerusalem. They had to go home in just a few short weeks. And so the church knew our only hope is to train them intensely. Every day we need to disciple them. We need to teach them from the Bible. We need to 
to teach them about Jesus because they're about to go home and we want them to take this with them. They're going home where there are no churches. We want them to plant churches there. And so the church did this radical work of discipleship, intensive every day in the temple all day long, training up these new believers. And that cost a lot of money. You had to give them places to stay, food to eat. And so everyone who lived in Jerusalem that was part of the church sold everything that they had to care for these new believers. And so even though that's not the same context we live in today, that same principle endures throughout the entire New Testament and the history of the church. The church is called to be a radically generous community. We are sacrificially generous to one another to meet needs and to expand the gospel, grow the church. You see that not only in Acts chapter 2, but Acts chapter 4 as well. Turn just a couple pages to the right in your Bible. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 34. This is just a beautiful picture of the early church. Verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Again, you see that phenomenal, radical generosity that characterized the early church as they tried to grow the church and to care for people's physical needs. Now let's talk for just a moment about meeting the physical needs of other believers in the church. It is easy to come to Grace Bible Church on a Sunday morning and look around and what do you see? A whole bunch of highly educated middle class people. And it's easy to assume, well, no one here needs any of my financial help. You're wrong. Actually, I know that as a pastor. I know the needs that are not spoken of. Here, there's many people in this church that desperately need help in this season of their lives. That's why we set up the PIN fund at Grace. People in need fund. When you give to Grace, some money goes to that, or you can give directly to the PIN fund. That money is for people who attend Grace who are in financial hardship. There are many people who need our help here at Grace. But to satisfy Acts 4, it's not enough only to care for the physical and financial needs of the people who attend our church. Because see, in in the book of Acts, if you think about it, church worked a little differently than it does today. How many churches were there in each city in the book of Acts? One. Just one. No church shopping. No such thing. In that day and age, everybody went to one church. So all believers in a locality were one church. Our context is a little different. Last I checked, there are 100 separate churches listed in the phone book in just Bryan College Station. So what does that mean? Well, if we're going to fulfill Acts chapter 4, then we who are part of Grace Bible Church have to think about and care about the physical and financial needs of these believers who go to all these churches in this town. And the reality is, if you look at it statistically, we are a very wealthy church. We have a lot of resources represented in this room compared to most churches in Bryan, College Station, Hearn, Navasota, Caldwell. They have far less resources. And so it is partly our responsibility to care for and give to those church families that have less resources than we do. Now, we can't do everything, but we must do something. When you think about the church in the world, we truly are our brother's keeper. Whether our brother goes to Grace Bible Church or a church in Hearn or a church in Bangkok. We are called to sacrificially give to meet the needs of the family of Christ, the body of Christ. 
That's actually one of the reasons that my family founded the, the charity OnRamp, which I've told you guys some stuff about. Um, OnRamp, we give away cars. And I'm not talking about this story to promote us. I'm actually talking about it to promote you because something amazing has happened. We thought in the course of a year we might be able to give away two or three cars. We've given away 23 in 18 months. And the reason is the people in this room. This room. You, that's kind of wasn't looking for clap. Thank you. That's nice of you. It really it's not it's not us. It's it's you guys. What has happened has been amazing. Almost every client we've given a car to has been a single mom who guess what is a believer attending another church, and their church has far fewer resources than Grace Bible Church, and so they're sponsored by their pastor or their counselor, or their mentor to us. And, and those churches love these single moms, but they don't have the, the resources to bless them with a reliable car. So what has happened? Well, like I said, I thought we'd give two or three. You guys keep coming. And so there are families in this room that have given the money for an entire car or actually just given me an entire car to give. And so in almost every case, it's a family with resources at Grace Bible Church giving to a family without resources at another church. And that is Acts 4. That is beautiful. That's another reason why as part of every knee, we're wanting to plant our next campus in Bryan Midtown. That's why we want to buy that property and plant a a church there because that's a a part of town that on average has less resources than our part of town. So we want to plant a campus there that will care for that neighborhood, love that neighborhood, share the love of Jesus with that neighborhood because that's what we're called to do as a body of Christ. We're called to this radical generosity that the world is blown away by. You see that not only in the book of Acts, but a little bit later, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints the relief of the saints what paul's talking about is that there was a famine in israel and so the churches in israel were literally starving people's crops were failing they had neither money nor food and so churches in richer parts of the world macedonia was north of greece it wasn't super wealthy but it was doing better than the churches in israel so the churches in macedonia sacrificially gave everything they could to the churches in jerusalem to take care of those physical needs to keep them from starving to death that radical generosity came to characterize the early church it was so shocking to the world that even if people hated Christians, they were awestruck by their generosity. They're blown away by it. From the very beginning, the church has been called to be a community of radical generosity. The problem is that's easy to say, but hard to do. It is hard to be radically generous because that is by its definition costly. You are having to give up something that is yours to someone else. It's painful. That, that, that involves a sacrifice. So we must ask why. And that's what we're going to spend the majority of the morning on. Why should we be radically generous people? 
Why should we put forth that sacrifice, pay that cost to be radically generous like the early church? There are lots of reasons in the Bible for being radically generous. I'm going to give you the top five. You do not need to pick one of these. They are all true. You can have them all. So why be a radically generous person? Top five reasons. Number one, because generosity is worship. Being generous is worship. Now notice I did not say giving is worship. Because lots of my people give money for non-worshipful reasons. Right? They give money to look good. They give money to put another person in their debt. None of that's worship. That's all selfish. Now, generosity is worship. Because generosity is not just the gift. It's also the motive. Generosity is that you give out of gratitude. You give out of a belief that you've been blessed and want to share that blessing with someone else out of love. That's generosity and that is worship. You see that in the book of Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts, the financial gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. There are many scholars who say that the entire book of Philippians is an extended missionary support letter. Paul was a missionary and these believers in the church in Philippi sent him money so that he could keep doing missions. He could keep planting churches. And so he is thanking them. And in thanking them, he wants them to understand that when they gave him money to support his ministry, it wasn't just about food and rent. It was about worship. By giving to to Paul's mission to grow the church, they were offering a, a sacrifice to God, a fragrant offering to God. It was pleasing to God. The act of giving in this grateful way is itself worship. And that makes sense if you think about it for a moment. If you think about the words actually, what what is the heart of worship at its very core? What is the most basic idea of worship? Well, you can actually hear it in English. Notice how close the word worship is to the word worthy. We sang it actually comes from the same words in English. They're meant to go together. Worship was originally worthship in Old English. The idea is when you worship, you are declaring to the world that the person or thing you're worshiping is worthy. You're lifting them up. You're saying this is worthy. Okay, so think about this. Um, I, I was doing some studying on the internet this week, and I noticed that the average price for one ticket to Taylor Swift's most recent tour is now running $279. It's a lot of money for a concert. If you spend that money, $279 on a ticket to see Taylor Swift, what are you saying to the world about Taylor Swift? You're saying she's worthy of your 279 bucks. You're saying that her music is worthy of that sacrifice. That's how worship works. You are declaring to the world, this person or thing is worthy of my sacrifice. So when you give to God, when you give to God's church, when you give to the things that God loves, that is saying to the world, my God is worthy of this sacrifice. That's worship. That is exactly what worship is. So when you think about what you've done this morning, most of us would say, well, worship was when we were singing. Yes, that was worship, but that probably didn't cost you much. Actually, when you give financially to the church or to God or to a missionary or to someone in need, that is far more worshipful than singing. 
Because that costs you. And worship at its core costs you. Because you're declaring to the world, my God is worthy. David actually talks about that. King David had the opportunity to buy some land and build an altar for God. But something strange happened. When the king went to the landowner to to buy the land, the landowner was so awestruck, it's King David, that he just offered it for free. So here's what David says, 2 Samuel. But the king said to Arona, the landowner, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David said, man, that's, that's nice of you to offer me this land for free, but this is an act of worship. And if my worship doesn't cost me anything, it's not worship. If it doesn't cost me anything, then what I'm saying to the world is my God is not that great. Not really worth that much money. No, I'm going to pay full price because I want my worship to be sacrificial. That's the only way to show the world that my God is worthy. Worship and generosity go hand in hand. Genuine worship must cost you. That's how you show how worthy your God is. So the first reason that we should live radically generous lives is because that is how we worship our God. That's how we show the world how worthy he is. Second reason why we should live radically generous lives is because generosity is witness. Generosity is witness. It's how we help people to see and believe in Jesus. I want you to to think for a moment. You know the answer to this. How does a person receive eternal life from God? By hearing and believing a message, right? We share the gospel message. We share this, this message of good news that Jesus, God's son, died for them and rose from the dead so they could have eternal life as a free gift. They hear that message and believe it and are saved. So salvation comes through a message. The problem is the people of this world are hearing a lot of different messages. There's lots of messages about salvation out there. So the people of this world are hearing from Muslims that salvation comes by practicing the five pillars. They're hearing from Buddhists that salvation comes through meditation and enlightenment. They're hearing through from Hindus that salvation comes by following one of the noble paths. They're hearing from atheists that there is no salvation, so don't worry about it. They're hearing from most Americans that salvation comes by just being a generally good person. There are all these divergent messages, so why should they listen to yours? Well, you might say because yours is true. And then you quote all that evidence for the resurrection I gave you during the Easter message. Good if you can. The problem is, most people aren't going to give you the time. Why should they want to hear all your historical evidence? And they can go watch TV. Why should they pay any attention to what you say? Answer is, because of your deeds. Because of your good and generous deeds, we must understand our lives are God's marketing for the gospel. Why should your message get the time of day in a person's heart? Because they've seen your radically generous good deeds. Your life is God's marketing. Your life is how God shows the world that there is a message that should be listened to about Jesus. You see this all the way through the Bible. But here's how Jesus himself said it. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. You are called to be a light for the gospel message. You do that through good deeds. Now, now good deeds, that's holistic of all your good deeds. Generosity is just one part of those, but it's a big part of it. 
How you show people that there's a God in heaven who loves them and died for them is by living a a life of radical generosity, a life of radically good deeds that people look at and say, "That's, that's incredible. They're attracted to it. They want to know more about Jesus because of the way you live. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. He says to us, maintain good conduct among the non-Christians so that though they now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. What Peter is saying is that non-Christians, they may look at you and not like you. And that's true. That's happening in our culture. We live in a culture where hostility towards Christianity is growing. More and more people find our beliefs and our practices to be offensive and they ridicule us. So how should you respond to ridicule? By fighting back? By arguing? By defending yourself? No, none of those. By doing good deeds. That is your response to ridicule. That is your response to hostility in the world. Is you do such amazingly generous good deeds that the world looks at us. And this is actually what I really hope for Grace Bible Church, for our family. My hope is that when the world looks at us, they would say, wow, I hate what they believe, but I am awestruck by how they love one another. What a victory that would be. We can't control whether or not they choose to believe what we believe, but we can control what kind of life we live so that they'll be awestruck by the love of Christ at work in us. That is how we respond to hostility in the world. Generosity is how we witness our faith to the world. It's how we get the world to pay attention to the message of Jesus that changes everything. So let me give you one very practical example. I encourage all people who attend Grace Bible Church, and I practice this myself, when you go out to eat, tip at least 20%, ideally 25%. That is a lot of money. You could get away with far less tip than that. Why should you tip like that? Well, because as soon as somebody knows that you're a Christian and they're serving you, what is going to be their judgment of you as a follower of Jesus? Primarily the number you leave on the line. Number you leave on the line is going to show them whether you're a generous person or stingy. They're going to find out what you think about them. So I tip huge, at least 20, usually 25%. Partly, I know they don't earn much, so that's how they support themselves. That's how they pay rent. They need that money. Second, because for more and more people in this town, they know who I am. And if it costs me $5 so that that person's first impression of a pastor at Grace Bible Church is that he is gracious, that's the best $5 I've ever spent. That's easy money to get someone to think about the word grace. When they interact with us. So be gracious. Radically gracious. Because it draws people to Jesus. It makes them want to know more. About the God that we serve. Jesus actually talked about this. He said a very strange thing in the book of Luke. 16.9. This is Jesus speaking. I tell you make friends for yourselves. By means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails they may receive you. Into the eternal dwellings. Unrighteous wealth, that's just earthly money. It's, it's not sinful. It just doesn't go with you. You won't get to take any of your money to heaven. So how do you use your earthly money well? You use it generously to make friends of people who aren't Christians. You give it so generously that they say, wow, I'd like to know more about who you are and what you believe. And you get to share the gospel with them and God draws them into the kingdom. And then guess what? They're your friend in heaven forever. 
Jesus is saying, use your money generously because that's how you witness to people. That's how you show that our God is gracious. So, be radically generous because that is our witness. Next reason. Third reason to be radically generous. Because generosity leads to joy. Generosity leads to joy. Here's what Paul says in Acts 20. By all these things I have shown you that by working in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. A little phrase there at the end of the verse. More blessed to give than to receive. What a cliche. <laughs> we heard that our whole lives. I remember hearing that as a little boy, especially around Christmas time, when I would get fixated on my Christmas list and counting presents under the tree, and my parents would worry a little bit about how, how fixated little Blake is on his presents. And so they would say, well, Blake, remember, is more blessed to give than to receive. And to me, that just sounded like an excuse to give me less presents. <laughs> but as I have grown older, I have learned that really is true. The reason it's true is because that is how God programmed you. When God built you from the DNA up, he built human beings to experience more and longer lasting joy from the act of giving than the act of receiving. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with receiving. If somebody gives you something nice, don't feel guilty for that. Celebrate that. That's nice. But you recognize that's not going to make you happy forever. Whatever they give you, it's going to get old. It's going to wear out. It's going to be done. But when you give, your body has a massively different reaction to that. It fills you with satisfaction and purpose and joy and meaning and love that transcends anything you might get. What Jesus wants you to understand, he, remember, he's your creator. He's the one who made you. He wants you to understand. You will be filled with greater joy and satisfaction through the act of giving than through the act of receiving. That is the way to true and lasting joy in your life. You really want to fill your heart with joy. You give. That's why Paul can say, 2 Corinthians 9, each one of you should give just as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. At first that sounds ludicrous. Cheerful giver, how can I be cheerful when I'm giving away my money I could have spent on myself? Well, because you believe Jesus. You believe that by giving that away, you are actually filling your life with greater joy than if you would have kept it. God doesn't want you to give out of duty or obligation. He wants you to give out of cheer because you believe this is the path to joy. So we're radically generous because that leads to joy. Fourth, we're radically generous because generosity earns reward. Back to Philippians chapter 4, which we read a bit from earlier. Paul says in Philippians four sixteen, For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift, a financial gift, more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. That's accounting terminology. It's investment terminology. What Paul's saying is, when you gave me that money, I was excited about it. It helps me, but I'm really passionate about how this leads to profit for you. Your investment in me is creating profit for you. That sounds wonderful. You're going to get all this profit. The key is to remember that Paul's not talking about profit in this life. A lot of people get that mistaken in their minds. They think, the more I give, the more I get in this life. No, there's no promise of that. This is about the next life. When you give to God and to God's church and to God's work and to people in need, you are investing in eternal profit. 
And, and when will you get that eternal profit? And what will it look like? Let me show you. We actually have a passage exactly about that. 1 Corinthians 3. This is a passage about believers. This is you. This is me. One day we're going to die. And when we die, we are each individually going to stand before Jesus. And he is going to evaluate our lives as builders. See, he's called each of us to build. To build his church. To build things that matter for eternity. You're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to evaluate how you did. Let's read. Each builder's work will be plainly seen for the day, that's judgment day, our judgment day before Jesus will make it clear because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what kind of work each has done. If what someone has built survives, he will receive a reward. If someone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now again, notice the end of the passage. You're already in heaven. This judgment by fire is not about heaven or hell. We're believers. It's all for believers. You're already in heaven. You're already with Jesus. But now as a follower of Jesus, Jesus as your king is going to evaluate how did you live in this life as his follower? He gave you time. He gave you treasure. He gave you talents. What did you use him to build? Did you build his church? If so, then the fire of judgment, that's a metaphor for Jesus evaluating whether something lasts. That's what it means. Is it eternally significant? When his eternally significant test burns through your works, if you built the church, it lasts. Because that's eternally significant. So it lasts, and Jesus says, that's beautiful. Here's your reward. You'll be rewarded by Jesus himself. What will the reward be? I don't know. In some passages, it's described as crowns. In others, it's described as ruling with Jesus in his coming kingdom on earth. In other passages, it's described as honor and glory. I don't know what it is. I just know it'll be yours for eternity to enjoy. Jesus himself will reward you. But what if you live for yourself instead? What if you take the time, the talents, the treasure Jesus has given you in this life and you use it to build your own kingdom, build a bigger house, build uh, more fame, build better career? And not, not that there's anything wrong with those things, but you spend it all on yourself, on building your kingdom. Well, then when the test of Jesus' judgment comes through, that fire that tests the eternal significance of our works, it's all going to be burned up. Nothing you do for yourself lasts for eternity. None of the possessions of this world, none of the wealth of this world lasts for eternity. So it all burns up. You're still saved, but you lose out on reward. You do not receive that reward from Jesus, whatever it is, to enjoy for eternity. So why be generous? Because that is how we earn eternal reward. Now, when I taught this in my fellows class, the theology class I teach here um, to some of the staff, um, some of them had, a, had trouble with this one. They felt like, Blake, that, that feels like mercenary motivation. That feels like you're telling me, be a good person so I'll get stuff. And that feels weird. That feels sinful. Well, let me explain. If your goal is to get stuff in this life from other human beings, that's sinful. That's pride and arrogance and idolatry. But if you're living to get reward and honor from Jesus in the next life, there is nothing sinful about that. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus wants you to want. Let me prove that to you. Here's Jesus himself speaking in Matthew 6. He says, Do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but accumulate for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus himself is saying, Hey, live in such a way that you earn treasure in heaven. Jesus wants to reward you. 
And if he wants to reward you, then he wants you to want his reward. There's nothing sinful about living for eternal reward. One of the things I tried to explain to my fellows class, we have this this false perception of the Christian life. For a lot of us, we think that what God wants, he's, he's giving us a choice. He wants us to choose between doing what is best for God or what is best for me. I want you to hear, that is never a choice you will be called to make because those are always the same thing. What is best for God is always what is best for you as long as you're defining best with a long enough time horizon. As long as you're thinking about what is best in eternity, they're always the same thing. Same goes for thinking about other people. Is God calling me to choose what is best for me to do towards other people or what is best for me to do towards myself? No, they're always the same thing. You have a really great God. God has designed the universe such that when you do what is best for God and what is best for others, it is always what is also best for you. God wants you to want eternal reward. There's nothing selfish or mercenary about that. God wants to reward you for all eternity and he wants you to desperately long for that. If you long for the reward of other people in this life, that's sinful. If you long for the reward of Jesus in the next life, that is beautiful. So God has called us to be generous in this life so that we can be rewarded bountifully in the next life. The principle is this, you've heard it. The person who sows sparingly in this life will also reap sparingly or be rewarded sparingly in the next life. The person who sows generously in this life will also reap generously in the next life. God wants you to look forward to eternal reward you can enjoy forever. That's the fourth reason why we should live these radically generous lives. Now the fifth reason. Be radically generous because Jesus was generous first and most. That's what we're going to celebrate in communion. So if the servers will head back to the back and prepare communion. Communion is our opportunity to remember what Jesus gave up for us on the cross and in the grave. I find it fascinating. I don't know if you noticed this. In Acts chapter 2, it told us that they met every day and they gave all their possessions to one another. Did you catch what else it said that they did every day? Every single day, they broke bread. In the early church, that means they took communion. So every time they gathered together, they took communion and then they gave sacrificially. Why? Because those two things go together perfectly. When we celebrate communion, what we're remembering is that no matter how much money we give in this life, we will never outgive God. Not even close. God always gives first and God always gives most. When you think about what are you giving up to to put money in, in the church, to put money to a missionary, to put money to a person in need. You're giving up money. And that that matters. What did Jesus give up? Jesus gave up his own life. And he's not just a human giving, he's God's own son. He's divine. He chose to suffer all we suffer in this life and he didn't have to. That was his free choice. And then he took all of your sin and he took all of the death you deserved. He took it all for you. Jesus gave first and Jesus gave most. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, it's really short, it's really easy to memorize. You can just commit this one to memory. First John 4, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loves. Christianity is a religion where God always takes the first and biggest step. 
Christianity is not a religion where you work towards him. You do this good thing, you do that good thing, you give some money, you help this person. No, that's not what this religion is. Christianity is a religion where God took the first and biggest step. And in response, in gratitude, we are then free to be generous. So why be radically generous? Because we serve a God who was far more radically generous to us. Our generosity is just one small meager response to how phenomenally gracious he was to us. So in communion, just like that first century church, we're going to combine generosity and communion together. As we take communion, what I want you to think about is how generous Jesus was to you. That's what communion's about. I want you to think, what did Jesus give for you? What did Jesus suffer for you? What did he do for you? As you reflect on what he's given up for you, it helps unleash generosity in your own heart. You see how blessed you have been. So as the men come forward, I invite you to take this time as the music plays simply to think about all that Jesus has done for you. When Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me Lord Jesus we praise you and we thank you that you gave first and you gave most we praise you Lord Jesus that no matter how much we give it will never equal what you gave for us so that we could have eternal life and forgiveness and hope. We thank you, Jesus, for how generous you have been. We pray that in response to your radical generosity, Jesus, help us to become more generous too. We pray that as a church family, we would be generous to all that you're doing here at Grace Bible Church, generous to get the gospel out to the nations, generous to help people in need. We pray, Lord God, that we would be so generous that even if the world hates our beliefs, they would be awestruck by our love. We pray that you would fill us with your incredible generosity and grace. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done. May you be praised and lifted high by our lives. In your name we pray. Now, if you'll stand, let's respond in worship.